Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm Lori Flores, uh, one of your hosts for the podcast. And today I'm really happy to be talking with Mireya Losa, the author of Defiant Braceros, How Migrant Workers Fought for Racial, Sexual, and Political Freedom. Defiant Braceros is part of the David J. Weber series in the New Borderlands History series um, from the University of North Carolina Press. And the official publication date was um, just recently. So welcome, Mireya. I'm so happy to have you on here. It's nice to be on. And it's nice to have an opportunity to chat. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mireya, when did we first meet? It was several years ago, right? When we were both maybe beginning grad students? Yes. When um, Steve Pitty and Matt Garcia would have um, intercambios, exchanges between the students they were training in Latino history. And that's when we first met. Yeah, so it was a long time ago, and we've been able to see each other through various points in our careers, and now through each of our first books. It's awesome. Um, So tell us a little bit uh, about yourself. Tell the podcast listeners um, a little bit more about your background. Where did you grow up? Where did you um, go to school? What kind of influenced you to take on the research that you did, and um, what kind of position in the field of history do you find yourself in now? Okay. I um, was born and raised in Chicago. Um, my father actually comes from a little village in Guanajuato, and my mother is from Durango, and they met in Chicago um, and you know started their family there. Um, my father and his brother um, basically fell in love with a set of sisters, and um, I was lucky enough to go to high school in Chicago and then attend the University of Illinois as an undergraduate. Um, there, I majored in Latino studies and anthropology. I was the first Latino studies major, and I designed my own curriculum through their independent plans of study. I was really, really lucky that by the time I started there, uh, student activism had 
really sort of blossomed and had produced a really great Latino studies program. The students really sort of organized and demanded uh, Latino Latino content in their classes and Latino professors and Latino curriculum. So the Latino studies program was sort of born out of that struggle. And I was able to, by the time I set foot on campus, take several courses, design my own curriculum and really pair that up with anthropology. And I thought that I really wanted to be an anthropologist. And so I went on to a doctoral program at the University of Texas, Austin, to work with um, Martha Menchaca. And somewhere um, along the line, I, you know, really sort of understood that I was drawn to her scholarship in part because she deals with historical narratives and she deals with history. And so I went on to a graduate program in American Studies and work with um, Matt Garcia, and it was there that my very first year, I was very, very lucky um, to literally, you know, take part in the project that would just transform my entire academic career. Matt Garcia um, had been a professor of mine at the University of Illinois, and he had moved subsequently to various places. And by the time I got to Brown, he you know, recruited me and I went out there and um, he reminded me that one of my very first assignments in one of his classes was in oral history with my uncle, who was a bracero, an uncle that I grew up seeing every single day, um, spent so much time with, and he wanted me to begin working with the National Museum of American History um, and their initiative around collecting Bracero oral histories and documenting the Bracero experience. And I really thought it odd um, because I really wanted to write a dissertation on Chicago. And that's what I thought I was going in to do. But um, when he first explained to me the great opportunity, um, I realized that what had seemed very ordinary to me, which was my uncle's experience and sort of hearing about not just that uncle, but several uncles in the Bracero program, um, was really an extraordinary experience, and I really sort of understood that there was that there was a bigger commitment to Latino history, and that um, public history could really help us capture and document this experience um, in ways that would hopefully transform the field. Mm-hmm. And so now you're a curator at that same museum, aren't you? Yeah, I um, finished up uh, at Brown at the you know at Brown University and got my PhD in American Studies and went on to work as an assistant professor. My very first job was as an assistant professor at the University of Illinois, my alma mater, in the Latino Studies program in history or the Latino Studies department. The first year I started, it had become a full fledged department with majors and minors, and um, and in the history department. So I was super fortunate that I was able to go back to my alma mater and work with great people there who really understood the kind of scholarship that I was engaged in. And, you know, recently, four months ago, I decided to literally trace, trace my path yet again and um, take a position on as a curator 
at, in the Division of Political History at the National Museum of American History. And so I'm very fortunate that I found a home in institutions that help produce me, produce the kind of scholar I am. Right. Yeah, I think that's so great. And I mean, both places are so lucky to have you at different points in your um, trajectory. And I think it's so wonderful that not only have you, you know, produced this academic book, but now that you're in a position as a public historian or somebody who can bring history to life or to the public in a new way, um, that this book can sort of cross those lines of the academic and the public. Definitely. I mean, that that is sort of the impetus for the book. I mean, the book is really about, it is about the historical narrative of, you know, about the Bracero program, but the book really also sort of documents the, you know, the years and years and years that I spent working with the National Museum on this Bracero history project. And so the Bracero history project, you know, began as, as a small project, but quickly evolved. And soon enough, we were collecting oral histories all over the Southwest um, they sent me several times to Mexico. We were able to secure an NEH grant. And, you know, early on, we partnered up with great places like, you know, uh, basically George Mason. And George Mason, you know, really brought the digital aspect to life in the Brasero History Project. And so they were able to create a really beautiful um basically a really beautiful product where people could encounter the oral histories online and hear the stories and see the pictures and look at the documents and objects that we were able to collect. And so it's really awesome to now think about, you know, think about it, you know, a decade later because I began collecting oral histories in 2000, I want to say 2005. Mm -hmm. And so it, it is kind of, Another another moment of coming full circle. So in 2005, we collected our first oral histories in, you know, in Salinas, which, you know, Salinas, uh, uh, Stockton, and the area that you know very, very, those areas that you know very well. <laughs> yep. And, you know, we were also able to collect oral histories in Chicago. Those were the very sort of first collecting sites. And we went on to collect uh, in Texas, Arizona, Southern California. And like I said, I went through Mexico twice with a backpack, a scanner, a computer, and a recording device. And one of the really awesome things about the project is we collected the oral histories, but also allowed people to share their documents and we digitized them on site. In some, in, in some, you know, in some occasions we asked people to donate their um, their objects or their documents to the National Museum, but no no one, by and large, many of the documents and the photographs stayed in their homes, um, stayed in these communities. Um, and so, you know, technology really helped us digitize oral history and helped me feel like, you know, people who wanted to participate and give something physical could, and if they didn't, they could give a digital, they can give their story, which was more than enough, and allow us to digitize their documents. So it was a really, it was a really beautiful sort of kind of experience to get to know so many families and braceros and communities that would open their doors in a heartbeat to people who really wanted to listen to their stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the generosity of these 
interviewees. These interview subjects are just amazing. Um, and I use the Bracero archive all the time in my teaching. You know, my, I get my students to go and read the oral histories that have been transcribed or the recordings have been put online. And I was reading in your intro, you personally did what, 90, 80 or 90 of these oral histories? Yeah, I, I actually captured a lot of oral histories. Um, part of the reason why the number uh, you know seems so high is because I backpacked across Mexico twice. Um, you know, the first, the very first time the project was, you know, the project was super fortunate to be able to secure, you know, uh, Alma Carrillo, who is also an oral historian, to join me. And we backpacked from uh, Mexico City all the way to the south. And then the second time, you know, from Monterrey all the way to the south. And we really wanted, well, I wanted to hit, you know, both big cities and small little ranchos, which are little villages where people's lives were just fundamentally shaped, you know, and impacted by the program. And, you know, a lot of times we think about these sort of big cities and we think we can sort of collect so many in these big cities where there are so many Mexican immigrants and so many braceros, but these really small towns or in small villages are just as important. And so I went to sites that weren't so common in the literature on braceros. I went to places in Tabasco, in the Yucatan, in Oaxaca, and really wanted to capture a very different kind of bracero story. Mm -hmm. And that is definitely, you know, the theme of your book, right? It's going beyond what we think we know about the Bracero program and showing us different sites of investigation, different topics um, of investigation when it comes to this history. So let's start by talking about your title. So why are these Braceros defiant? What is making them defiant um, in the context of your narrative about these men? And what about your own scholarship on the Bracero program is defiant or perhaps going beyond um, the more common boundaries of what we think about this program's history? Well, you know, when I think about um, how this book sort of came to life, it really, you know, it really came to life with sort of my misconceptions of the Bracero program. And, you know, my I'd, again, grown up with these stories about the Bracero program, and I thought I knew what the Bracero program was. And every single time I interviewed someone that sort of presented a challenging view or a view that fell out of, you know, the scholarship or, you know, the family, my family's narrative, I paid attention and I wrote it down and I thought about it. There were moments that I felt as, you know, I felt chills when people spoke because I knew this was not just outside the margins, but that, that what they were seeing fundamentally could shift the narrative about the program. And, you know, every chapter sort of comes from, you know, these moments, these sort of sparks with people, these, you know, moments where people really taught me something that I did not know. And, you know, that, that is where, sort of the defiance starts. The defiance starts with people literally with their own understanding of their own history defied what the narrative sort of tells. You know, the very regular sort of points that everyone knows about. Let's say, you know, people know about the migration to the border. People know about the DDT sprains. People know about the arduous labor. But 
every once in a while, someone would tell an extraordinary story about going to the cinema with their patron. And I would, you know, my jaw would drop. And I thought, how does this change what we know? Um, or, you know, things that are illicit, you know, sex work. Um, and I thought, how does this change what we know? And that's sort of how every chapter, you know, evolved. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's go chapter by chapter, because I think the way that you structure the chapters is really interesting, because before each chapter, you sort of give us a little interlude. I think you call them interludes, and they're basically... Yes. Um, these little sections where you sort of insert yourself and describe, okay, this is the context in which these stories came to light as I was traveling here and I was interviewing this person or this group of people in this location in, in Mexico. Um, and you start your first chapter by talking about a, a demographic of braceros that we don't often hear much about, and that's indigenous braceros or people who had um, indigenous identity. So, sort of take us through chapter one briefly. Um, what kind of uh, things did you find out about this community that we did not know before? Definitely. Well, you know, you're, I mean, the interludes are just that. The interludes are these moments where I do insert myself, but I do it in an effort to sort of demystify how these, these oral histories came to life. And I want to show that these oral histories are really a dance between an interviewer and an interviewee and, they're really kind of special moments that aren't duplicated in the same kind of way that a document can if you scan it or photocopy it. These are very, very singular kind of events. And so, you know, the first sort of chapter is really framed by my ignorance. You know, I was in L.A. at, you know, collecting oral histories and Nemesio Mesa just in 20 seconds and did everything I understood about the program. And again, there are these sparks, these moments that I think this is exceptional. This is extraordinary. Um, Nemesio, I asked him a question in Spanish and I asked him, what was the most difficult part for you of the Bracero program? And he says, well, I said, I didn't speak Spanish. And I was befuddled because he was speaking to me in Spanish. Mm -hmm. And I could not perceive that Spanish was his second language. And he explained to me that Spanish was indeed his second language. And I thought, how have we been missing this? How have we been missing this? How have we thought that a bracero is a bracero is a bracero and we are all racially the same? And, you know, we, you know, new scholarship on, you know, on migration and, you know, really through the work of anthropology, we're learning more about indigenous migrations, but, you know, history has yet to sort of grapple with race in terms of Mexican migration. And when he said this to me, I, you know, thought that I needed really to make a strong commitment to capturing more stories like his. And this is what led me to, to go to places like Oaxaca or to go to Pátzcuaro and Hanitzio and populations to visit communities and populations of indigenous Mexicans and indigenous folks, you know, in Southern California that also had a Bracero story that really transformed them. And for some people, this sort of transformation 
they interpreted as not just a, you know, a transformation in, you know, in terms of, you know, experience, they thought of it as a transformative racial experience. And that blew my mind. You know, I interviewed more indigenous braceros and, you know, an indigenous bracero said to me, yo era indígena, I was indígena. And I thought, you were indígena? For Nemisio Mesa, that was not the issue. Nemisio Mesa saw himself as indigenous still. But for this other bracero to say he was indigenous, I couldn't wrap my head around that. And so as I sort of talked to more and more braceros, and as I also went back into the archives, I looked at how the sort of discourse of modernization was used in tandem with discourses of race. And how, at this specific moment, indigeneity was something that was entangled with modernization. And Mexico wanted to sort of do away with the indigenous, to appear more modern, to be more modern, to enter into modern. And indigeneity had to be sort of left in the past. And, you know, mestizaje was the future. And so this the chapter grapples with that sort of dilemma and... You know, really, I wanted in some ways to sort of produce the kind of scholarship that gave indigenous populations a history that predated the 1980s. You know, and I hope that in the future I can sort of continue to do this kind of work and push sort of the histories of transnational migration and indigeneity further uh, back than the Bracero program. Yeah, I just thought it was, I really loved your um, use of the visual um, things like political cartoons or photographs or these other graphics. And one of the most striking ones is this photo spread in Agricultural Life magazine where it shows the juxtaposition of braceros coming in with either sandals or boots. Sandals mm-hmm. sort of like implying um, a more, quote, primitive or naive or even indigenous identity versus braceros who maybe had, you know, a contract previously who had an experience of the United States who had learned these kind of codes around clothing and boots being modern or a signifier of, you know, wages earned. Um, But I just thought that that was so striking that um, it's not only the Mexican government, but the U.S. government and both societies on both sides of the border sort of pitting like an indigenous identity against a, a modern bracero identity. Definitely. And, you know, even in the historical record, you find indigenous people, you know, not necessarily referred to as indigenous. And here's where, you know, I, I do interpret documents where they talk about Brasero populations as primitive. And primitive is, is, you know, a very loaded and coded way to reference at this moment indigeneity. Um, so it did take a little bit of sort of, you know, excavating in the archive to find these moments archivally where this happens. And, you know, for me, the visuals, it was also about interpreting these visuals because the visuals of, you know, braceros, you know, with simple white cloth pants and simple white cloth shirts, pantalones y camisa de manta, I mean, that connoted indigeneity. And they wanted to juxtapose that constantly with modern, you know, modernization. And, you know, for some braceros that, that movement, you know, to say I was, I was indigenous, 
you know, isn't necessarily because of, you know, cultural shame. I came to learn that for some of them, it's because they saw that they had stepped into some kind of modern way of living, whatever that means for each person might mean boots, might mean radio, it might mean a slew of things. And, you know, for others, it also meant that they were moving away from poverty. And so, you know, all of this, all of these symbols have so many different meanings. And my job was to sort of kind of put those on the table along with the oral histories and help, you know, the oral history. The oral histories would sort of help me interpret what these other, you know, with what these other objects and what historical documents meant. And so they kind of sort of always illuminated the path. Yeah. And, um, you know, moving on to your next chapter, because the Bracero program now is, you know, in the last couple of decades, more historians have paid attention to it. The greater public is paying more attention to it. The Bracero program... Um, and documenting it has become so much about remembrance um, that this kind of leads to what you call this sort of almost sanitized image of the ideal bracero or this kind of noble laborer um, who was in the U.S. And in your second chapter, you really complicate our notions of these um, men's social worlds. Um, you start uh, here talking about sex and, you know, in those of us who know something about the Bracero program, we know that Braceros were isolated um, in their labor camps. They were very lonely. There was a lack of mobility there um, during the work week and even on the weekends. Um, and so you start talking about um, sexual activity, sexual mm -hmm. identity, um, and how this really kind of complicates our notions of who these men were. Can you talk a little bit about what you found when it came to uh, the topic of sex? Well, you know, I was really fortunate enough to also work with teams of people on different sites in the U.S. And, you know, at the end of the day, many people would come back and tell the stories that they had heard in their oral histories. And I remember at some point, you know, Grisel Murillo, who was at that point an undergrad working with us, told this great story about, you know, about sex work. And I thought, you know, this, this, Exactly, I mean, exactly as you said, these men are isolated. They also want to engage in acts of pleasure, you know, and they constantly are looked at as arms of labor, as beasts of burden. And I thought that, you know, when you have such a limited, when you are in such sort of a limited space, you have limited resources, how do you engage in moments of pleasure. And so I know some men play baseball. I know some men played soccer and, you know, cards. But some men really took back their bodies and also engaged in sexual activities. And so I like to frame it as that because I do think that in this defiance, this defiance can also be in some ways liberatory because they're spending, you know, eight, nine, ten hours as bodies of labor. And you know, taking back their bodies in moments of pleasure is just as radical. And, you know, at times we think about sort of radical movements, radical thoughts, radical actions. And I thought that this was a radical action, right? They're saying, I may work many hours, but my body is mine. And 
you know, some men participated in soliciting, you know, prostitutes and sex workers. Um, sex workers would come in, you know, because it was very lucrative, both for pimps and, and for the actual sex workers. Sex workers can make, you know, a, a good amount of money in one night. Um, and braceros solicited. They not only solicited, you know, they not only solicited, you know, what would be perceived as, you know, as, uh, you know, you know, born women, but they were also soliciting trans sex workers. They were soliciting, you know, um, in some moments they were, I shouldn't say soliciting, but also engaging in acts with other men. And so, you know, the oral history has really helped us document this. And, you know, I found evidence of, you know, of sex work through archives and newspapers, but really the oral histories helped tell way more than, you know, than printed documents. Um, there were medical reports also that really sort of, you know, trace the, um, the growth of, you know, sexually transmitted diseases. And so I wanted to think about how, you know, we really want to sanitize this image because we want to tell really great stories about our grandfathers and our fathers and our uncles and our family members. We want to tell these extraordinary stories. And sometimes we feel that sexuality is something that can't be part of that story. That only, you know, sexuality can only be framed in terms of family sacrifice and, you know, this sort of great sacrifice that they made for their families. This is, this is the way the story is always framed. It's assumed that the only reason why anyone would take on this arduous labor is in a self-sacrificing mode for their families. And I was able to, you know, find that some men did it so that they can engage in just another world. Um, some men wanted to see the world. Um, this isn't always the story. This isn't always the norm, but that they, that some men were able to frame their story like that is extraordinary to say to me, me fui porque me quería aventurar because I went because I wanted an adventure really kind of flew in the face of these like narratives about sacrifice and men who said I was single and I wanted an adventure. So they worked against the logic of family. They worked against the logic of sacrifice and they presented a new logic. And I had to sort of figure out again how to use the oral histories to frame this new logic that they were literally articulating. How, as an oral historian, did you get um, people to open up about this? Was it very easy for some people to just begin talking to you about um, this more intimate part of their experiences as a bracero, or did it take um, time and trust for people to even start to address? Um, these kinds of defiances of going outside the, you know, the stereotype of the bracero who was there just to work hard for his family? Well, you know, that's, you know, in the field, I also train graduates and undergraduates. And I always say to people, we have to follow braceros. And there's some, you know, this is where it's part intuition, part reading someone, and part dancing that magical dance. And there are some people that, you know, I didn't feel like I had built enough trust to actually 
ask them these kind of questions. And there were other people where I felt that, you know, that they were open to those kind of questions. And these are very jarring questions when you think, you know, a 20 something year old young woman is sitting across from me with a recorder asking me about my sex life, (laughs) especially if you've just met that person 20 minutes before that. It it, It can seem almost prying. It can be, it can seem intrusive and prying and, you know, it's, it's a very sort of delicate matter. And, you know, the only thing I can say, you know, for folks who want to do this kind of stuff is it's really about, you know, reading, you know, people and building relationships as quickly as possible so that even if they only knew me for 20 minutes, I had to give them sort of all of the affirmation and all of, and build a sense of trust so that, they felt that I was listening and that they could tell me these things. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's a difficult alchemy, but, you know, I was lucky that many of the young oral historians really were able to strike that alchemy and were able to sort of hone in on these things. So it wasn't just me, but, you know, I was really excited when I found that, you know, other young women were able to also, to also, like I said, strike that alchemy. Um, that, that made me really sort of, you know, it made me know, it made me really proud for the project because, you know, we encountered people asking us things like, well, do you think that, you know, you should be training more young men to carry out these oral histories because you're dealing with a, a male population? You would get much better oral histories. And I had to explain to people over and over that this is, like I said, a special dance. And, you know, I will take, you know, a young, you know, woman who can, you know, read people and understand social cues and, you know, has read the scholarship because I believe that they can do fantastic work. I believe that they can do really fantastic work and document these stories just as well as anyone else. Now, will they produce a different kind of document? Yes, but we all do. Yeah, this is something I'm interested in, you know, just because I've done a lot of oral histories in my own work. I'm just curious, like, who are the oral historians that have influenced the way that you conduct yourself as one? Are there any, like, particular books or sort of essays on oral history that you would recommend? Well, you know, um, some of the some of the things that I'm, you know, I'm really, you know, interested in is actually folks that are, you know, writing in performance, um, you know, I use sort of ideas of Diana Taylor's um, archive and repertoire and think about how oral history is also a performance. It's a performance of memory. And that, I think, more so guided my work um, than, um, than sort of the standards in oral history methods. Um, I, I would say that, you know, sitting down with some of those ideas and thinking about, you know, thinking about how I myself even perform my story, you know, and how we don't sort of duplicate these, you know, that every person shapes this. And so the story I tell you and what I'm saying now to you, Lori, is shaped by the fact that we've known each other. Mm-hmm. And so it feels much more like a conversation and, you know, and I trust you. <laughs> so right. I think, you know, those kind of things always shape what we say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a performance on both sides of the table, right? On either side of the recorder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, 
it, it sort of um, also shifts the way we think about oral history because we're always sort of pushing oral history to produce that singular document. Because if it doesn't, it's fallible, it's, it's false. If it's not performed the exact same way each time, then how can it be true? Um, but I just sort of think, you know, why does it have to produce one single document? Why can't it produce many? I mean, if I had my wish, I'd go back and interview these people and see, you know, 15, 20 years later, how they tell the story. And does it change? Does the position they were in then and does the position I'm in now change the dance? And I venture to say it will. I mean, let's knock on wood. Maybe one day I'll be able to do that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, we hold oral histories to such a different kind of standard than we may hold a a written text, right? And the kind of reluctance that some of my students have expressed to taking oral histories um, as valid sources to read and to critique and analyze, I always have to remind them, you know, these are as much um, documents produced by human beings as any other written or visual or textual document out there. They're just, it's different. Um, and it is an, a, re- a record of an interaction between people. Yeah. And it's up to us historians to read that record and interpret it. And that's sort of the thing that we think that we're not doing with regular documents, but we are. It isn't just, you know, a number that we say that is the right number that we're copying and putting into our document and saying that that is the truth, the history, the factual. We're constantly interpreting documents. And so I kind of just feel that we should just do the same with oral histories and interpret and and allow in some ways, unlike the document, allow us to have moments of reinterpretation, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, going along this theme of, you know, crossing borders, whether it's between people or between nations, um, in your third chapter, you tell us more about this um, transnational labor union effort to organize braceros in their work. Um, so this was La Alianza, um, the alliance, um, which was this effort to try to organize braceros as workers um, across borders. And um, then you move on to talk about a more recent kind of movement to organize braceros, the bracero justice movement. Um, so can you sort of talk about each of those organization efforts in their own context? Definitely. La Alianza, you know, my chapter three is on La Alianza de Braceros Nacionales de México. And this alliance, this alianza, um, really um, comes about because of the lack of oral histories. A young man brought in this ID, you know, that his father saved, um, issued by the Alianza, this Alianza de Braceros, and I just couldn't figure out what the heck it meant. And I went down a rabbit hole of, you know, of trying to find more information, and I hit, you know, two folders that were needy, needy. I guess it's more than two folders. I hit, I hit the box, uh, the special <laughs> box um, at the at um at Stanford um yeah. in the Galarza papers mm-hmm. and you know I was you know I was in awe that Galarza had worked with the Alianza and the Galarza had documented some of what the Alianza had done and the Alianza is this early organization that tries to organize braceros across the border 
and they are a organization that is composed of braceros by braceros for braceros and you know i could not find very much in the alianza i found one footnote in or one you know one um or two sentences in you know steep pity's book and i found another sentence in nai's book and i wanted more and i couldn't figure out where where more was what i can do and so this is actually the only chapter that i would say is doesn't draw on oral histories as heavily and really is a visit back to the archives mm-hmm. and a visit back to thinking about um about labor and labor organizing and you know we have a rich a rich body of scholarship that thinks about braceros and labor organizing and so i revisited those as well and thought you know that i could tell a story about these men who worked with Galarza in an attempt to organize and found themselves sort of shut out at every turn at every turn they feel shut out shut down and you know by the end there many of them are blacklisted uh red baited and you know the saddest part is when you know key leaders write Galarza from jail in Mexico and say you know compañero have you abandoned us you know rest assured we are you know we stand with you and i you know was both you know saddened by knowing the end of the story that they did not succeed but i was also sort of inspired that they even attempted to do something the attempt was just as extraordinary as you know as the possibility of success right that they imagined that they could that they thought that there was just a chance for them to actually organize transnationally you know before you know sort of this you know understanding that we have now that you know transnational organizing is essential these men were attempting to do this you know in the you know in the 1940s the 1950s you know through the 60s it was a really you know heartwrenching story like i said to find that they had failed but a really inspiring story that they saw that there was a possibility mm-hmm. why why did it fail why did this um effort ultimately fail well you know i blame it on several things i blame it on you know, more and more restrictive sort of public laws that were instituted that really shaped the bracero program with public law 78 um i also sort of blame it on the fact that these are deportable men so many men who attempted to organize could be deported in the fields could be blacklisted as they attempted to enter um and then there was harassment on the mexican side as well and so for me you know some of the scholarship has has not has has framed the story as a story of exploitation in the US but it was equally a story of exploitation in mexico and you know i i constantly sort of am grappling with the fact that mexico left people countryless and you know these men were exploited in mexico these men were criminalized also that participated in the alianza in mexico and so the mexican government was just as culpable for the you know their their exploitation and that to me that to me really sort of shifted how i thought about um about my scholarship you know and and i really in many moments try to go back to mexico and place it place the story in mexican politics collect stories from braceros that have gone back to mexico and see 
how they look at the world, how they see this point in their lives. And so this book was as much about is about widening the, widening the context so that Mexico was constantly included, you know, constantly part, an integral part, part of the story. Mm-hmm. And you continue that through the next chapter when you talk about our contemporary, you know, what we're witnessing now is the Bracero justice movement. Um, so can you explain a little bit about what that movement centers on and what it's fighting for? Well, the Bracero justice movement is looking to recuperate uh, 10% back wages that were taken from Braceros. Now, different folks argue that, you know, this, the money wasn't, you know, that the money was taken for, you know, for the first years and not, you know, not through the 1950s and the 1960s. But Braceros argue that this money was taken from each and every contract from the beginning to the end of the program. And this money was supposed to be given to them when they returned to Mexico. But many of them did not receive this money. Um, they, you know, during the years of the Bracero program, I found tons of letters at the National Archives in Mexico where Braceros pleaded with officials to return their money and their 10%. Other men simply didn't know that this money was being taken out of their paychecks. And so um, Steve Pitty calls this movement the Bracero Justice Movement, this movement to recuperate these back wages in the contemporary period. And the Bracero Justice Movement really is about, you know, it really is a case of, you know, wage theft, the biggest wage theft, I would say, in the Americas. And so Braceros um, have been working now for, you know, over a decade, way more, over 15 years trying to recuperate this money. And, you know, they sued Wells Fargo. They, Wells Fargo was able to prove that they in fact had given the money to the Mexican government. The Mexican government has told them that there are no records of, of, um, this money in the same way that they, you know, don't have lists of who were braceros. And so the Mexican government under pressure has, um, had agreed to give these money what they called a social compensation and una compensación social which isn't really back wages. And these men, and so they began to give these men, you know, um, I would say about now seven years ago, um, they began to give them, you know, a portion of what they called this, these back wages, which were this compensación social in the form of a little over $3,000. And it sounds like a lot of money, but it really wasn't that much money considering that some men had worked years, years on multiple contracts. And so these men, in order to receive this money, had to prove that they were in fact braceros. And what was really heart-wrenching was that many of them had lost their IDs, had lost their contracts, and could not prove. And so the state placed the onus on the families in these braceros. And these braceros you know, would say the, you know, the most, um, just the saddest things to me, you know, like, senorita, can you help us recuperate our back wages? You know, senorita, the government is waiting for us to die so that they can forget about us. And what do you say when someone feels that they've been fleeced multiple times and that the buck keeps being passed? And so they really um, articulate this new politic and they tell the story, you know, in a way, 
that censures them as victims in order to recuperate these lost wages. And this kind of victimhood is paired also with masculinity and patriarchy and, again, family uplift. But the means is, I mean, the goal is here to get to recuperate these back wages. And so in some ways, I think about how they construct this history and how the movement constructs this history. And the movement constantly shows pictures of these men in their most alienating moments, naked, getting sprayed with DDT or naked, you know, um, being, you know, examined by doctors. And I asked myself, why would a man who is 80 years old wear a shirt of braceros who are naked in front of a doctor? Why would he wear that with pride? And the answer was because he had survived it. And because for him, that was sort of, you know, the scar of, of, of pride of saying, you know, I survived this and they still owe me this money. They put me through this and the government owes me more. They owe me more. And, you know, they are still fighting. Many of them, very few were eligible and their families were eligible. And, you know, these older elderly women who also would say, my husband has passed away, but this is his, this is, these are back wages are his, this is ours. And, you know, it, the movement really inspired me in many ways because we think about social movements is social movements that are centered on youth and the future and social movements that are centered on, you know, telling different stories for future generations. And this was a social movement centered on the past, on elderly. And this was a social movement that had no response, you know. And when I think about, you know, movements, you know, around Japanese internment, and people constantly would ask me, well, is this akin to sort of Japanese internment? And I'd say this is a different, this is a different monster altogether historically. And in terms of how we think about it, the Bracero justice movement can't really reconcile itself. It can't, it can't be resolved. And the reason why it can't be resolved is because immigrants keep coming to work across to the U.S. in equally exploitable conditions. Guest workers with H-2A visas continue to come in as, you know, neo-braceros, basically new braceros in the system. And so we can't have penitence for something we continue to let happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They can't reconcile this so easily. Right. Mexico can't reconcile this so easily. The U.S. can't reconcile this. Mm-hmm. You know, there is no way that I see that they can reconcile it. And what I do see is that these men are articulating this different kind of politics, this different kind of social movement around states and reconciliation and around their role in, you know, in, in building, you know, these nation states. And so I just, I was very, you know, inspired and moved by a movement that was headed up and, and by elderly men, you know, elderly men who'd ask their nieces and nephews to write emails for them and their daughters and their sons to go to meetings with them. And, you know, they're, you know, the many daughters, many, many women standing by their fathers and their grandfathers. Mm-hmm. And 
by their grandmothers. <laughs> right. Yeah, this is a kind of dignity politics that's involving many more people now than just the original workers. Especially Definitely. since many of them have passed away already, which is, I mean, it just makes the situation even more sad that they didn't get this kind of justice while they were alive. Yeah, but I remember going to Oaxaca myself and seeing just boxes and boxes and boxes of documents that these braceros had brought in, and they were basically just being abandoned in the corner of rooms, of offices, um, and these men over 100 years old standing in line every day waiting um, to hear if anything had happened. Um, on that. So this movement is continuing. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. People are still organizing. Yeah. People are still organizing. And I think, you know, it, it, it's changed, it's evolved, but you know, the movement is composed of several organizations and their activists are still working towards the recuperation of the back wages. And, you know, the really lovely thing is that many of the activists would say to people, take the compensation social, take the social compensation because we are working towards the true true back wages and we are working towards true back wages for everyone for mm -hmm. everyone involved mm -hmm. and not the, just those who could prove they were braceros <laughs> right right exactly um and at the nmah um where you're working now um is there are you working on exhibits now that will um address either bracero history or latino history um broadly speaking is there anything coming up we should know about well, you know, the National Museum of American History has really, you know, um, has really seen the Bracero History Project flourish. It started off with, you know, these really lightweight single panel, panel, you know, single panel um, exhibitions, you know, not very big, these lightweight, this lightweight exhibition so that it could travel everywhere. And the Bracero History Project produced this beautiful exhibition, Bittersweet Harvest, right? Light panel so it could travel everywhere. And you know, within weeks of um, sites, which does the, the touring of these um, exhibitions, within weeks of the promotion of the, you know, promotional material being sent off to their affiliates, the, the exhibit was completely booked. And um, they decided to produce a second to travel simultaneously. And this was in, you know, it opened up in 2009. And I always sort of thought, you know, this is the last year. This is the last year. We're creeping up on the last year. But now it's been extended until 2018. And so, you know, I really hope that it's actually extended to 2019 so that I'm around to celebrate its 10-year anniversary. Yeah. Wouldn't that be amazing? I'm sure it will be extended. I mean, every institution, like lots of institutions around the country want to host this traveling exhibit. I mean, it, the lightweight panels had led institutions that don't have a lot of resources um, to be able, basically, because travel costs and, you know, insurance and everything else is so, so much more accessible because it is so, so simple and beautiful in its, in its simplicity, right? Um, they were able to host this. And so, so many small communities and big cities have been able to host this exhibition. And my, you know, my hope is that, you know, I'm around to see, you know, 2019 and, you know, the museum is constantly building around this. And so, you know, it, I'm hoping it's in the works that, you know, next year there's a youth summit. And, you know, it's it's very likely that the youth summit will be um, anchored in Bracero history and will be ex it will be exploring Bracero history. This last year, the youth summit um, explored uh, Japanese incarceration and internment. And so this next year, you know, will be a Bracero year. And 
for me, every year is a Bracero year. And <laughs> <laughs> for me too. Don't worry. For me too. <laughs> for, for, for both of us, the, the problem is for both of us, every year is a farm worker year. <laughs> Yep, yep, it continues to be that, yeah. <laughs> and then some days, you know, we have really wonderful, you know, programming and events that um, are geared towards this kind of exploration. And when they come up, you know, I, I feel, I, I'm sure you do this too. I sit there and smile and think, this is why we write what we write. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, how do you, you know, to end on like a personal note about your transition, you know, from being a professor to being um, a curator, at, you know, in your professional life, um, do you see your responsibilities to history or to the public as different now? Or do you think that that they hold a lot in common in terms of responsibility? I mean, I think I've, I think they hold a lot in common. And I think that there's this, you know, symbiotic relationship. And I think that working with communities can produce great scholarship and can produce great public history. And I think the Bracero history project is that moment shows that moment that this is possible we can tell transnational stories we can collect objects in mexico and bring them back to the national museum and say this is american history this is american history and for me that is powerful you know it is powerful you know to say bracero history is american history and you know i i hope that you know i can continue just to work on projects that really allow me to use, you know, my oral history methods and my interest in public history and my interest in teaching the public um, more about who Latinos are. Well, I'm so glad you're in that position to do that. And um, I hope to visit you at the museum sometime. The next time I'm in D.C., I want to stop by. Um, but thank you so much for talking with me, Maria. I really, really appreciate it. I love the book. Um, it's got the best cover ever, by the way. So those of you who still haven't seen it, um, you can find more information about Mireya Losa's book, Defiant Braceros, How Migrant Workers Fought for Racial, Sexual, and Political Freedom, just published September 2016 with UNC Press. Uh, we'll have the link available on our podcast episode page. Um, you can reach us at New Books in Latino Studies at newbooksinlatinostudies at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media, on Facebook and Twitter. And um, I just want to say thank you, Mireya. It was such a pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And whenever you want, we will. I will take out the gems of agricultural history um, at the museum <laughs> out for you so that you can come and check them out. Oh, very VIP. I can't wait. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah.